Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. It's important to understand how bad the reading situation across the nation and in California really is. Before the pandemic, 50% of California kids could not read at grade level. Now that number is more like 60%. This is a multifaceted problem, and no one thing will suddenly pull all California or Bay Area kids to reading proficiency. But what if the curriculum that's been used in schools is partially responsible for the problems that our children have reading? On the one hand, this would be a tragedy. On the other, unlike so many other things in American society, this is something we could do something about. If you can just change how reading is taught, right? Today we're going to talk about how kids learn to read, what we know, what we do, and what we should do. That's all coming up next, after this news. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. Fa- Phonics. Phonics is the discipline of explicitly connecting letter forms to the sounds we make with our mouths. And for literally decades, teachers have wondered whether they had to teach kids each and every phoneme or whether they just kind of get it with enough practice. At least according to our guest this morning, that debate has been settled. Some kids will just get it. But a large majority will struggle unless they're explicitly taught the code of written language. And for many years, most schools and most teachers have de-emphasized phonics in favor of other approaches to literacy. Whole word or balanced literacy approaches tend to teach kids to look for meaning, scan whole words, connect words to pictures. Outside of graduate schools of education, this is seen as a disastrous approach to teaching kids to read Phonics is not sufficient to create a great reader, but for many kids, our guests argue, it is necessary. Joining us this morning, we have Kareem Weaver, co-founder of Fulcrum, a nonprofit focused on improving reading outcomes for students. Also a member of the Oakland NAACP Education Committee, a senior fellow for the National Council on Teacher Quality and an award-winning teacher and administrator in Oakland. Welcome, Kareem. Morning, morning. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us. We're joined also by Emily Hanford, a senior producer and correspondent with American Public Media. Hanford is the creator of the podcast Hard Words, which focuses on why children aren't being taught to read. She's working on Soul the Story, a new podcast about the missteps and teaching children how to read. Welcome, Emily. Hi, thank you for having me. And finally, we're joined by John Fensterwald, editor-at-large with EdSource, an independent not-for-profit research and reporting organization. Welcome, John. Thanks for joining us. It's a pleasure to, to uh, be on, especially with uh, Emily and Kareem. 
Emily, uh, let's start with you. Back in 2008, you produced a groundbreaking and really kind of policy-shifting podcast on how kids in the U.S. are taught to read. In a nutshell, what'd you learn? Yeah, good question. In a nutshell, I produce long-form documentaries, so sometimes a nutshell is <laughs> It's hard a pretty big nut, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I've been an educational reporter since 2008, but this hard words piece came out in 2018, and I didn't know anything about how little kids learn to read. And I got interested in it actually through doing interviews with college students and college professors and just hearing this theme over and over um, about how college many college students were struggling with reading. And it just got mm. me interested in this uh, rabbit hole that I'm still in uh, uh, five years later, nearly. Um, and what I what I learned, I learned a lot of things along the way. Um, but I think what what I learned is that it has been assumed for a long time within schools and schools of education, broadly speaking, that most kids will learn to read well if they are read to enough by their kids, they grow up in a literate environment, they get interested in books, schools provide a good environment for them to sort of pick up reading, that it is sort of at core, a natural process that you learn to read much in the way that you learn to talk, which is you're surrounded by print, the way you're surrounded by spoken language, and you put it together. And the assumption has really been that most kids are okay, that, that that's how it works for most kids. And then that there are some kids, a minority, maybe not a small minority, um, but there's some percentage of kids who will really need to be taught how to do it. And I think the big insight here is that it's really the opposite. There's a small proportion of kids who really can get this with very little instruction. And there's a much wider swath of people. And it's a continuum from people who aren't going to be very good at it unless someone gives them some pretty good instruction to people who really aren't going to be able to read at all unless they're explicitly taught sort of how you talked about it in your introduction, like explicitly taught all of the phonemes and sort of taken through all of written language. And, you know, human ability when it comes to reading is on a continuum. It is not connected to intelligence. There are many very, very smart people who have a hard time learning how to read. And I think the thing that was for me as a reporter, that was one of the biggest ahas was not only learning that, but recognizing that what I just said was known and demonstrated through hundreds of studies, lots of research all over the world, and had been demonstrated solidly more than 20 years ago. Mm. So we have known this for a long time, and yet schools have remained, for the most part, uh, really stuck with this old paradigm that kind of is what a lot of people believed before scientific research, really starting back in the 70s, revealed a lot of things about reading and how it works, and really told us, bottom line, most people really need to be taught how to do this, or at least they need to be given a good foundation. And it is true that, that you do eventually learn to read by reading. Many people really do begin to, a lot of what you know as a mature reader is stuff that you have picked up along the way. But unless you get kind of a good start, there's a whole lot of kids who, if they're not provided a good instructional start, they sort of never get to that self-fulfilling <laughs> dynamic where they learn to read by reading because they're just really cowed by it at an early age. At the age of five and six, it's confusing. They don't really get it. Many of them kind of turn off to it because none of us really like to do things that are hard and frustrating. Many of us like to do things that are hard and challenging. You know, if we're given the skills and we go, you know, hard can be feel very really fulfilling. 
But for a lot of little kids, this is the first thing that they have to do when they get to school. This is sort of the first task of elementary school is learning how to read. And a lot of kids at the age of five and six years old are getting very stymied and frustrated because they're just not, it's not being clearly explained to them in school how this works and they just don't really get it and they're not going to pick it up on their own. Kareem Weaver, as an educator and as a parent, how did you see the teaching of literacy playing out in the schools that you were familiar with? Did you see kids explicitly being taught phonics and going down that path or did you see other approaches i saw both um when i came up as an educator in oakland uh in the 90s we had a lot of veteran teachers and many of them had learned methods matter of fact many of them had come from the south um and and then migrated to california and other port cities um and they they understood uh, the language, and they understood the importance of breaking down the language step by step and teaching kids to crack the code. However, institutionally, the thinking was, look, teach what you want, when you want, how you want. And, you know, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that dog won't hunt. So um, I've seen it both ways. And I've seen schools and school systems move more towards, you know, evidence-based strategies or science of reading, or however you want to call it. And I've seen a growth. And on the flip side, I've seen the opportunistic teaching where you do what you can when you can. Um, and I've just seen it unfold. For myself, or I should say unravel, for myself, I pretty much stuck to my guns. And I taught basically what worked. And um, for that, I had to, di to diverge from some of the things that were being pushed inside the system. Yeah. You know, John Fensterwald, you know, Kareem is alluding to, you know, California policy or school policy around how reading is taught. Can you give us a little background on, you know, at that you know, state institutional level, what was the state's approach to teaching literacy and training teachers to teach kids to read? You know, for the past decade, the state's largely been uninvolved. It's it's relied on the principle of local control, which can be valid in a state as big and diverse as California. It can also be a rationale for inaction. And there is phonics mentioned and uh, sections on phonics in our frameworks from the frameworks which are used for guidance of teachers and textbook publishers in 2013. But this was never widely distributed to districts and to teachers. Mm -hmm. And we've missed a, a largely an opportunity to make it a priority during the past decade. And particularly in the last several years when the state has had so much money, federal money and state money to both spend on, on early literacy and also to make it a priority and to say districts, you have lots of money now. Now's a good time to update those textbooks in which phonics is not included, get materials that are and don't wait for the next adoption of the state textbook in 2025. So it's been a series of missed opportunities at the same time it's done individual steps, such as you know the adoption of universal uh, transitional kindergarten, which could be important if teachers are trained in how to teach reading, that could be a huge step. And, and other things, individual actions, but not a cohesive approach to early literacy, and particularly phonics and structured literacy, which uh, Kareem and Emily said. We're talking about California's approach to teaching kids how to read and why teaching kids to read has been such a source of controversy. We're joined by John Fensterwald, editor-at-large at EdSource, 
Emily Hanford, senior producer and correspondent with American Public Media and creator of the podcast Hard Words. And Kareem Weaver, co-founder of Fulcrum, a nonprofit focused on improving reading outcomes for students. Emily, why did other approaches, how did they gain such traction in our schools if there at least was some evidence that wasn't working very well? That's a great question. It's a question I've been trying to answer for a while, and I have a new podcast coming out in October that tries to go into some of the history and unwind some of that and figure out how did this happen? How did it happen that we knew 20 plus years ago how kids learn to read and what most kids need to be taught, and yet that wasn't widely instituted in schools across the country? And um, again, I don't think I can give you a nutshell answer, uh, but I think I think one part of the problem actually is the conversation that we have about phonics, because it isn't the only thing that kids need. Um, It's a very important piece of the puzzle. But I think one of the things that has happened is that the reading wars were sort of wars about phonics. um, Mm -hmm. And we came to a sort of compromise that if if you do some phonics, then your reading instruction is good. So as long as the textbook says there's some phonics and the teachers have a little bit of phonics and you know, then, then it's, you're, you're, you're doing the right thing. And I think what um, was misunderstood is that there were some things that teachers were doing that do not, that actually get in the way of kids learning to be good readers that can actually really cause some harm to children. And that has to do with teaching them to do things other than sounding out words. And I think that we just failed to figure out that that needed to be taken away at the same time that good phonics instruction needed to be added. We're talking about California's approach to teaching kids how to read and why teaching kids to read has been such a source of controversy. We would love to hear from you. How did you learn to read? What worked for you? Maybe what didn't work for you? Or how about your kids? How'd they learn to read? How was it different from how you learned to read? You can give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. It's KQED Forum. And the email's forum at kqed.org. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about how we teach kids to read. Joined by Kareem Weaver, co-founder of Fulcrum, a nonprofit focused on improving reading outcomes for students. Emily Hanford, senior producer and correspondent with American Public Media, creator of the podcast Hard Words. She's been focused on children's literacy approaches for for years now. And John Fensterwald, editor-at-large with EdSource, an independent not-for-profit research and reporting organization focused on education issues. You know, Emily, with a lot of these 
big problems, you know, we often want to hear from people who are kind of closest to the situation. And in this case, that feels like it would be teachers in the classroom. But your work over the last few years has argued against what many, maybe not most, but many teachers believe about reading. Um, how, how do you kind of reconcile that as a reporter? Well, I have to say that I think um, the response to my reporting from teachers has been huge and really illuminating. I think there are a lot of teachers out there who have known for a long time that something wasn't quite right. Um, and it depends on who you talk to. There are a few different reasons. There's like a gut level feeling. And for some teachers, it's just a couple of kids in their class every year who they just can't figure out a way to reach them. And in some schools with different kinds of demographics or whatever, it could be a lot of the kids in the school. And they knew that something was missing or something wasn't right. And I have to say that a huge aha moment for a huge number of teachers is when their own children struggle with reading. So I have spoken to so many teachers who have broken down in tears because they themselves taught reading for five years, 10 years, 20 years. And then they had a child who went to school and at the end of first grade, that kid still couldn't read and the teacher couldn't teach them either. And the teacher suddenly realized, I don't know how kids learn to read. I don't know how to teach reading. So I think that one of the reasons that change is perhaps really starting to happen here is not just the advocacy of parents across the country. And there's a very effective and vocal parent movement, which we can talk more about. But I think there's really a movement among teachers. I think teachers are recognizing that they either didn't have the information they needed about how to teach kids to teach reading, or they were actually given not very good information. They were told things that are not accurate about how children learn mm -hmm. to read. And they're feeling um, guilty. Um, I have many teachers who have broken down and just said, I can picture the faces of the kids over the years who I, I didn't teach them how to read, or I taught them strategies that did them harm. Hmm. And I feel terrible about that. And those hmm. teachers want help and they want better training and they want better materials. And they're speaking up, uh, to their administrators. And sometimes they're getting support from those administrators and, and sometimes they're not hmm. because this puts schools and school districts in a tough position because in many cases, many cases they have invested large amounts of time and money in stuff that is really coming to be widely questioned. And that's a difficult situation for a school and a district to be in. Hey, Kareem, let me ask you. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Before, before you ask me the next question, I just want to jump in right quick on something Emily said. She said that teachers were feeling um, you know, they're, they're in their feelings about this and they feel guilty. I go one step further. Many teachers feel betrayed, betrayed by their graduate schools of education, by the publishers, by the chief academic officers, by the principals, by, uh, by the media, by this, this, this machine that's pushing things a certain way. They spent their hard earned money and their precious time to learn the skills they need and the tools they need to use to serve kids. And now they find out after all these years, wait a second, I was fed things. I was taught things that weren't in kids' best interest. And so I, it's, it's, it's beyond anger at this point. There's a feeling of betrayal that is that. And so that's why the leadership to address this can't just be technical. You actually, actually have to deal with the human element of this, hmm. which is why should I stay in a profession that's stacked not just against me, but against the kids I'm serving. And so there, there's another component of this besides the technical that I think is important to, mm -hmm. to remember too. So, you know, Kareem, let me just follow up on that with a uh, listener comment. Uh, Susan writes, 
In doing research for my dissertation and as a school psychologist, it became clear that there were differences in the, quote, wiring of kids. Some did better with whole words, other with decoding. Good instruction offers both and respects those differences. Do you think that's an accurate description of how things play out in the classroom? So I taught for a long time and loved every second of it. It was hard, hardest job I ever had in my life. Um, there are kids who can learn any number of ways. And that's what the research shows. You have 5% of kids or so who really don't need this. They're gonna learn to read regardless. Then you got about 30% of kids who can learn using a variety of methods. And that's what the person writing in is referring to. That's one method. That's one. There are other methods, there's Montessori method, there's whole language, whole words, whatever you balance, literacy, fine. There's lots of ways kids can learn to read, but that's not the question. For a public institution, how do we get the greatest number of kids reading possible? The most bang for our buck. And there are some things that we have to do to make that happen, which includes the kids the writer is referring to, but it also includes the 60 to 65% of kids who will not learn unless we do things in an intentional and a strategic way. Can I add something to that, Alexis? Sure. I think one of the things that's really, one of the big insights from the so-called science of reading is understanding that while there may be a bunch of different methods or approaches that can work for some kids, they'll sort of learn to read no matter what, what the scientific research has been investigating and has revealed since the 1970s, you know, cognitive scientists got interested in this question, how do we read? How does skilled reading work? And what they discovered is there is a way that skilled reading work. All of us who are skilled readers read in basically the same way. There's not a whole bunch of different ways to be a good skilled reader. And while it may look like, for example, that some kids can just learn whole words and other kids need to sound them out, what has been revealed is that to get all of the words that you have to be able to, in a split second, know in an instant, in order to read a book and read as quickly as a skilled reader can read, you have to somehow know, recognize, understand those words in an instant. And what happens is our we're not wired with brain, we're not born with brains that are wired to do that. We actually have to sort of change our brains. Like these changes happen to us inside our neural networks when we become readers. And it happens through the process of sounding out words. So you and I, who are, who are skilled readers, can quickly identify a word as soon as it's flashed in front of our face. In fact, we actually can, scientists can show that we can read that word without being conscious that we're reading it, okay? Like we know it, but we know it because at some point we sounded it out laboriously. We did that whole thing like you did at the beginning of the show, phonics, 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 oh, Oh yeah, there's, there, there's the pronunciation, there's the spelling, and I know the meaning of that word. And you connect those three things, the pronunciation, the spelling, and the meaning, and this like, it's like this, it like gets glued together in your brain. You do that a few times and it's like it gets stored in your brain. And it looks like you're reading whole words, but you're not really. You're very quickly accessing these three important components of a written word. It's spelling, its pronunciation and its meaning. And when those three things get linked tightly together through that initial little kid, or you and I know that as an adult, you might come across a word you've never seen before, right? When you're reading and you sound it out. 
and you may or may not sound it out correctly. <laughs> we all know that there are examples of words you've seen many times in print and then someone says it to you and you realize you've been mispronouncing it your whole life. <laughs> like the example I like to give is epitome, which my son, you know, was <laughs> You mean epitome, says, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> and you, you know, you and he knew that word, he kind of had seen it before and then I was like, no, you mean epitome? And you could see in his brain right epitome right i've heard people say that i didn't know what that was i've seen it in print i thought it was epitome oh and it's this aha moment and then the word like gets stored in your brain and it's there and literally once a a, a word is stored in your brain like that like it can't be taken away unless you get like a massive brain injury <laughs> like it's just there forever but lots of kids are not storing enough of those words in their brain because they don't know enough about how to sound out a word and try to come up with a pronunciation. Yeah. They haven't been taught that, they haven't figured it out. So they don't have the tools to get all the words into their brain that they need to be fast, proficient readers who can comprehend yeah. what they're reading. Yeah. Hey, John Fensterwald, uh, how do we connect up the things that we're hearing from Emily about the, the brain science that informs these particular methods of, of teaching reading with what's actually happening with teachers in schools and the, the cu curriculum that exists, you know, the kind of practical application of what uh, of the science she's talking about? Well, you know, about 30 states in the past decade have adopted um, more of a comprehensive approach to early literacy, in part, in all credit to Emily, who have, whose stories I have followed for years, she raised that level. Other states looked at the success of Mississippi, which required that phonics be taught in all of its classrooms and that, that textbooks and materials that they use be based in the science of reading. And what you see is in California, when you don't make it a priority and you don't say, yes, these are important, we've actually recognized this in our framework, um, is you make it harder for teachers such as Emily talked about to have a voice and it's more chaos and, and conflict at a local level because there are veteran teachers who feel that despite the evidence, this is just the next phase in the reading war mm -hmm. that they've witnessed for year, for decades. And, you know, it becomes a, an issue of adults fighting regardless of really what's important for kids, which is to teach structured literacy and decoding. And so the battle turns to a, to a district level when, in fact, you know, if the state needs to step in and say, yes, we recognize this. Early literacy is critical. Phonics is an element that you must do in kindergarten and first grade because all kids can benefit. And when you don't do that, it's easy to continue with the status quo because training in Training in, in phonics, and if you haven't had it, takes time, and it can be difficult in, in terms of recognizing difficulties and comprehension. What do you do? What do you do when you have a screen which says this child's having difficulties? What do you do next? If you haven't been trained in it, it takes a lot of training. And if a state doesn't step in, districts will always turn to mm -hmm. other priorities, and the state has done that with billions of dollars instead of early literacy. Mm -hmm. Let's bring in some callers here. Lots of people on the phones. Uh, thanks for waiting. Gwen in San Francisco, welcome to the show. Hi. Um, I was London Breed's teacher when Raphael <laughs> Will is uh, was Raphael Will, and she didn't do too shabby. 
But what I'd like to say is the way I learned to read is I lived in a um, house in Kentucky that was a very small, extended black family. And the, my parents wouldn't talk about any old thing in front of us. When they wanted to talk about something, they would spell it out. So I just would take my little ashy leg and I would um, <laughs> with my finger write that word in there. And then I would figure out what it meant. So I think spelling, you need to get spelling in order. In fact, I read um, Joan Marie Shelley's uh, Frankenstein when I was only like eight or nine years old. That's, you know, advanced reader I was. Wow. Also, um, Texas and Mississippi, they find out something that works like phonics. And I remember getting students in. Uh, from those states, and they would come in reading at least two grade levels over my students. And the last thing I want to point out, California and San Francisco pray tell to these book companies. So they, you know, someone sells them something, they buy it. They don't stick with one thing. And the best program they had was Open Court. And I love that program because they would have the phonetical spelling the word, uh, the picture up there on your board, you, that replaced the ABC. So I really liked that was the best program mm -hmm. San Francisco ever had. You, uh, and that's it. Yeah, thank you so much, Gwen. Thank you for that call. I love that uh, story. <laughs> uh, the things that your parents wanted to keep from you but that you learned anyway. Um, thank you so much for your call. And uh, Kareem, you know, could you want to talk a little bit about open court and these different, you know, curriculum is one of those things that I personally bounce off of. It seems very complicated and like its own industry, but it, talk, talk us through it a little bit. Sure. So goodness, you know, I used to, I used to blame publishers for the products that they were selling to school districts because the, the, the products were largely ineffective. Um, in terms of getting kids to read. But then I started to think about it and I, I talked with some CEOs of various publishing companies and what they told me was that, look, man, we don't, we're responding to what they want. We're not trying to drive the field. We're responding to the field, which was, which was a real shift in my thinking. Hmm. Um, you know, one, one CEO said, if we were in Texas, we wouldn't sell electric vehicles. We'd sell SUVs. We'd go out of business if we were selling electric vehicles in Texas. And it's the same thing with with reading, hmm. uh, there are some curricula that are good. You got about, last count, I saw about 10, what I would call high quality curricula. You look at groups like Student Achievement Partners uh, and others who vet these things and Ed Reports who looks at alignment to standards. But I look at results. How are, how are kids learning and how are teachers experiencing these curricula? And the class gets smaller and smaller and smaller. For the most part, Districts follow trends. They use things that are popular as opposed to saying what works best around the country. Not what my neighbor's neighboring district is doing, but what's happening in Seaford, Delaware and in Lane, Oklahoma, and, and uh, you know, uh, in some places down in Kentucky, Goose Creek Elementary, other places. But they look at podcasts like uh, Ed Trust podcasts about extraordinary districts and they, and they find out what they're using. In California, however, what we do is we go with the most powerful publishers and their products. We, we use the things that um, can navigate the politics successfully. We go with the best brochure. 
we go with the, the best bumper sticker, what I call it, the big brands, the big boxes. And that's a failure. It's been an abject failure for years, but no one's really to talk against it. And another thing is that we have to stop just looking for another manual. So for example, if I'm an African-American and I believe in academic English, that is very important. Well, a publishing company can give me a book on academic English to supplement the core curriculum. Or if I'm a, a bilingual uh, advocate, a publishing company can give me another manual around uh, the needs of bilingual students. It checks a box. And so the bureaucrats are happy. However, in the classroom, I'm looking at five and six manuals and I've got an hour and a half to do all this stuff. There's no way. They have got to synthesize that information. They've got to leverage the research about, you know, phonemic awareness, phonics, uh, fluency, vocabulary, and, 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 and also add, you know, comprehension or language development, writing, and all those things, synthesize it. We have got to stop chasing shiny things. We have got to use evidence as a driver of our decision-making. That starts at the state level. Why don't we have randomly controlled trials sponsored by the state of California about what's working best. I know there's what's works clearinghouse, whatever. That's not enough. I need to know that there was a district that used this curriculum and it closed the achievement gap. And it, it's excellent for all. I need to know how much time it takes to plan and prepare for these lessons. Because here's, here's something else. I got news for you. If you're in a unified district, you've got a certain amount of time to prepare for your lessons. It's contractually stated mm -hmm. you've got curriculum that have got three and four and five times that amount of planning needed to actually implement with fidelity mm. why are we even entertaining those things they should be declaring that on the side of the box so there's a lot that we could do um, in terms of shifting uh, the way we vet these different curricula yeah. we're talking about how we teach kids to learn how to read missteps, but also hope and possibility. We're joined by Kareem Weaver, co-founder of Fulcrum, a nonprofit focused on improving reading outcomes for students. Emily Hanford, senior producer and correspondent with American Public Media, has been on this beat for years. John Fensterwald, editor-at-large with EdSource, independent not-for-profit research and reporting org. You know, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, Lander Falls, you may want to try Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, where we're KQED Forum, or the email is forum at kqed.org. Are you a teacher? What approach do you use to teach reading, and how has it gone for you? Uh, stay tuned for more. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We are talking about how we teach kids to learn how to read with Kareem Weaver, Emily Hanford, and John 
Fensterwald. Can go to the phones again in a second. We've got to, definitely got to talk about dyslexia. But first, John, um, let's say that advocates of structured literacy and other the other approaches that people are advocating are overwhelmingly successful and a real program rolls out across the state. It's got real funding. All, all the things are done correctly. How much progress do you think the state could make in teaching kids to read? Well, I think it could make significant progress, but uh, it, it's it's a multi-dimensional approach that you need. And just rolling out a program, say you know you need to teach phonics, isn't going to succeed unless, for example, it, it's often overlooked. You need to get principals and assistant superintendents who really may not know much about instruction trained as well, so that it's really from the state to teachers there's a consistent and uniform approach and it involves getting materials out there, training teachers and having coaches who are in fact trained in the science of reading. And then I think you can see significant progress and, and you could see it in Mississippi, which did that, which was, you know, the poorest state in the nation. It went from nearly the last to now it has the, the na- national average on the um, national assessment for educational uh, uh, progress, NAEP, which is what all states take, and California is behind the this, the average. But we would see progress. But but to, uh, Alexis, there's something to consider, which is we're going to get third grade test results on the Smarter Balance very soon, mm-hmm. and I think that everyone is predicting uh, it's going to be bad, and we saw that with the ninth grade ninth nine year old results from NAEP just last week. We have a crisis. We're facing a crisis, and it could be showing because of the pandemic. Because of the pandemic, yeah. thank you. Yeah, but kids could be a year or two behind in reading, mm-hmm. and so if our goal is to have every student, every student, being able to read by the third grade, we may find ourselves behind. And the same, I should say, is in numeracy too. It's not just, in fact, it mm-hmm. could be worse in math. But we are facing a crisis in which we really must respond. Uh, and it will take a lot of resources and ten- mm. attention that we have not devoted to reading. Mm, thank you for that. Let's um, go to the phones again. Jenny in Petaluma, welcome. Hi, thank you so much for hosting an hour on this topic. I'm extremely passionate about it because I have a 12-year-old daughter who is dyslexic and Reading is the thing that allows us to access all sorts of education, from math problems that are written to art history, which is also, you know, can be consumed in the written form. We have kids, approximately 10 to 15 percent of the population, who cannot read unless we use a phonics-based structured literacy approach. And as one of your um, guests put it, this is evidence-based reading. We know that it works, and it works for kids with reading challenges, and it works for kids that don't have it. And so there's no reason why California should not be putting this into place. It's truly, I think, a crisis, mm-hmm. and it's an equity issue because I personally had to spend a small fortune getting my child the intervention that she needed to learn properly. And there are thousands of kids whose parents don't have access to those resources who are being failed by the public school system. 
And it's it, it breaks my heart every day to know that this is happening and that we know how to fix it. We know what needs to be done, but we can't we can't even pass a law in California that requires testing for early reading abilities. And and it's just really heartbreaking that the only way we're going to change is to bring voice to this issue. So I'm very, very grateful um, for all of your guests working on this topic. Thanks uh, for that call, Jenny. Emily, I wanted to bring this to you. I mean, teachers and, you know, superintendents and assistant superintendents and principals, all these people are they they go into this because they want to teach kids, right? They want they want to be a part of, you know, teaching kids to read and their educational outcomes, you know, they're they're good people. So, what is the evidence that people use for using these other approaches? They they there's got to be things that people are relying on outside of the kind of stuff that that you're talking about. Well, a couple of responses to that. You'd actually be surprised if you sort of dig in to some of these uh, programs that are popular to recognize um, how thin the research base really is. I think a lot of people assume that there's um, good rigorous research and in some cases that there isn't. Uh, there, There are some studies that show some things that are working, but I think um, one of the things that's happening in schools all over the country is that little kids, many little kids can look like good readers in the early grades, especially some of the strategies that are widely taught that allow kids to kind of figure out the words without necessarily knowing how to sound them out very well. A lot of kids in relatively simple first, second, even third grade books can kind of guess the words, memorize a quote unquote, a certain number of them by like the way they look can use the pictures and other hints. And what often happens is that by third and fourth grade, as the books get more difficult, there are more and more words that kids have never seen before. The Mm. words get longer, multisyllabic words. There's no pictures anymore. A a percentage of the kids start to fall apart because they don't have the foundational skills uh, securely in place. So I think one thing that's happening is that things can look like they're working at a certain grade level or at a certain point in a child's development, and then things fall apart. And then other explanations are given to the falling apart. (laughs) He's not paying attention anymore. He's having behavior problems. Things are, he wasn't read to enough at home, you know, uh, poverty. That's a very popular one. So we've sort of seen this problem in one way, and I think it's different than the way that has often been seen. And the previous caller, is a good example of the fact that in many um, of our more affluent communities, the magnitude of the problem is masked by the fact that there are parents who intervene and take care of the problem themselves. If you have a child who is in first and second grade and is struggling with reading and is miserable in school as a result, and you have the ability, the time, the money, the whatever, to fix that problem on your own, you will. And people will go into debt, borrow money from their families, take on a second job in order to pay $100 a week, $200 a week for the tutoring they they need, or for a parent to quit their job and teach their child themselves. Mm. I have run into all of those cases Mm. so many times over. And I got into reporting on this because I was talking to people all over the country and I was hearing the same story over and over again. And it was the story of my kids struggling. I'm going to the school. The school says he's doing fine. She's doing fine. He's on the right reading level. And the parents saying, no, something's not right here. Mm. 
mm-hmm. and the parent being forced to try to fix the problem mm-hmm. on their mm-hmm. own. And so we have a bigger, you know, in many of our affluent districts, you'd actually be surprised at the scores. If you look at them, they're not as good as you might think. And we have huge gaps among different groups of students. But if you even look at sort of the certain groups of students, you are you have to take account for the families. How much outside making... help is coming. Exactly. In. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, we've got a, a bunch of comments. Going to run through a few here. Uh, different reading memories that that people have. Uh, Megan tweets: My oldest was in a balanced literacy classroom in Oakland and still is two to three grade levels behind in fourth grade because he's dyslexic and wasn't explicitly taught. My youngest child benefited from Oakland Unified switch to structured literacy and is on the way to reading in first grade. And writes, uh, as a homeschooler, children now ages 27 to 33, I used phonics to teach my children to read. Never bought the idea of the alternative methods. Being able to sound out a word via syllables seemed so basic to me. An unfortunate aspect of public school is that not all children are ready at the same age, adding to the trauma. Davey writes, it's a nice one, I grew up in the 80s with Reading Rainbow. Yes, me too, Davey. As a preteen, I would ride my bike to the library maybe three times a week and check out three to five books. Megan tweets, my oldest learned to read relatively easily at school. My middle child needed intensive structured literacy that he should have been able to access at school, but we paid for privately. To your point, Emily, I taught my youngest to read at home using phonics and sound out books. You know, Kareem, I I wanted to ask you about your own experience uh, within your family of trying to get help for your daughter to improve her reading. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Um, yeah, man, it, it, it's a very hard topic. Um, I'm grateful to her for letting me share it. Mm-hmm. Um, so she's dyslexic. We didn't know, you know, I'm, I'm a teacher. My wife's a teacher. Um, we, we, we this is what we did professionally. And I taught her to read. I taught her to read. So she went in, a, in and she was held back in kindergarten intentionally just to give her more time. Mm-hmm. Same with my son. So she goes in the first in the kindergarten. We're thinking everything is great in the traditional public school. By the second grade, she had gone backwards. Mm-hmm. Had gone back. The methods that they were using were so um, contrary to what she needed that she actually unraveled. By the mm-hmm. third grade, you know, I was getting we we had meetings and all the rest, and we could not get her tested to save her life. We couldn't. Uh, there was always a delay. Oh, she's so nice. Just give her more time. All the all the things. And by the time, you know, we, we ended up in middle school writing letters to the superintendent and the principal and all the rest, nothing helped. Schools don't really want to test kids. They don't want to screen them. They don't want the information because they don't know what to do with the kids if they end up having something. So we ended up taking her, putting her in private school. They didn't know what to do with her either, but at least they were willing to listen to us. And we paid for private testing. We spent money we didn't have. And so that's what Emily's talking about, about if you have money, you will do some things. So we spent the money, we got her tested, found out she was dyslexic um, with no time to spare. And she basically, she told us, you know, dad, there's more than one way to drop out of school. Mm. She'd gotten so far behind that she checked out. And what I'll just say is there has to be some accountability to all this. Now I'm happy now she's on the right track. She's doing well. She made all state in the softball team for California. (laughs) Uh, she'll be off to Bowie State in, in um, next year, but there has to be some accountability for those who are in charge. You know, who made the decision to use these other methods? Why didn't they vet the research? It's not a secret. Why didn't they read the studies? For for us educators, 
How do we accept these results? If a third can't read and we didn't put everything on the table, what went wrong uh, for us to allow these kids now get you know, bitter and angry and they're running in packs and filling up prisons? For advocates, why are we focusing on names on building and theories that our kids can't even read? And for a public, how can we, you know, the divisions along class and political lines, like how does everybody still have a job in that institution? And how are we so focused on other things? So my, my daughter's just one. There are thousands of kids throughout the state who aren't getting what they need. And, and there's teachers who wanna serve them who don't have the tools or the materials. They're basically being asked to make bricks without straw. Mm. And so I'm grateful that we were able to fund their testing and get her the help that she needed, but there's a lot more that needs to be done for the rest of California's kids. Alexis, can I add something? Yeah, sure, go ahead, John. So one thing that the state is doing it's, fun, it's funding for $18 million to UCSF to create a screen, an assessment, which identifies difficulties so that you wouldn't have to go out and test on your own, such as Kareem did. And that should be in multiple languages, and it should be out in a year or two. Or two. And the issue that was raised earlier is this, this governor is dyslexic, and so he's certainly well aware, and he led the effort to fund this. But there was a bill to make it universally required of all districts and the CTA, California Teachers Association opposed it. And so did the English language learner community, which is uh, for reasons we can get into. But so the administration has not supported it. The hope is that it will provide the training and have a good enough screen that all districts will adopt it. And so the debate is whether it should be mm. made mandatory. Mm. Let's get into some of these issues. Dorothea in Berkeley, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks. Um, so I was a preschool teacher, and some of my students' parents would come back to say hello when the kids were in kindergarten. And they told me that the children were being required to write essays. Oh, dear. I never learned to read in kindergarten, and I'm a great reader. I don't understand why the developmental issues aren't being addressed in our schools. Many children... It will not developmentally be ready to read until third grade even. That's maybe unusual. But And then the other thing I'd like to really stress is that when a family is speaking English at home and reading stories to their kids in English, then reading gets easier. But you said 50% of our kids are not, uh, they're not thriving around reading. Well, most of them are probably from families that don't speak English at home. So I just want to stress that. And then uh, one other thing, um, yeah, I think that's the, the, the thing that has to be addressed is that we're not doing developmentally appropriate teaching. Yeah. What's your opinion about that? Yeah, let's, um, Emily, let's go to that. I just wanted to say, uh, you know, it's not just uh, English language learners who are, who are struggling with reading. It's the, the, the problem is really widespread. And that I'm looking for the exact stat and I can't find it right at this moment, but um, it's, it, it's a, bro a broader problem than it, it might look. Emily, do you want to address the Dorothea's questions? Yeah, I mean, I think she raises a good point uh, about, um, you know, kindergarten really has become the new first grade, and there are a lot of legitimate concerns, I think, ab about that. But I think it is, um, the research does not support the idea that this that there are like some kids who aren't ready until third grade. I think that kind of that idea fits in with this um, other false idea that that reading just develops, and you have to give it time. And that's what parents are often told in school. And it turns out that's really not the case. I mean, reading is a skill 
that you need to be taught. And some people need a lot of instruction and some people need just a very little, uh, but it is a skill that you don't just develop with time on text. And so if a kid is struggling in first grade, it is important for a parent and a school to identify that and start to uh, address it and not wait until third grade. Because one of the things that's really important to understand about reading skill is that it's cumulative. And it's not just about learning how to sound out words. It's once you learn how to sound out words, it's through reading that you learn more words and the meaning of more words. And that starts to happen. And so these kids who get the reading thing by first and second grade start to sort of spiral up up. exactly and the other kids it's not that the other kids necessarily go backwards although kareem was talking about his daughter some kids do go backwards but they just make very they just don't make very good progress and that's the achievement gap right you've got some kids who are just developing these skills and other kids who are kind of limping along and you don't want to let it develop i think there's a good argument to be had about how much kids are being taught in kindergarten and what is kindergarten for There is a ton of research that shows that most kids are ready to read and be taught how to read by first grade and can make very good advances if they are taught well. And we should be doing that in school. First grade is for learning how to read and being taught how to do it. We've been talking about- jump on- Oh, Kareem, I I think we're- Really quickly. Okay, real quick. Okay, Okay, real quick. So I also work with with the NAACP, um, the, the Oakland branch, and this is a civil rights issue. The, the school to prison pipeline is not a myth. It's a real thing. When we wait too late, when we wait until second, third grade to start giving kids what they need, we are we are giving them a ticket to a place that no one wants their kids to go. We've got to figure out societally how we're going to make sure that our kids get what they need as early as possible so that nobody ends up with a kid that they can only see through a glass window. Thank you for that. We have been talking about how we teach kids to read, why it's been so controversial. We've been joined by Kareem Weaver, co-founder of Fulcrum, a nonprofit focused on improving reading outcomes for students. Emily Hanford, a senior producer and correspondent for American Public Media. And John Fensterwald, editor-at-large with EdSource. Thank you all so much for joining us. I want to end on a comment. Marson writes, I taught kindergarten for 16 years. The best teachers know there's no one way to teach all students. The best teachers use phonics, spelling, and writing workshop. The seasoned teachers never threw away the phonics curriculum. It's not only what you teach, but how you teach it to reach students of different learning styles. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another Hour of Forum with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Heising Simons Foundation, and the Bernard Osher Foundation, supporting higher education and the arts. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
all over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.